Anyway, let us pray. O oh God, who didst lay the foundation of man's being in wonder and honor, and in greater wonder and honor didst renew the same, grant that by thy holy incarnation that he who is partaker of our humanity may make us joint heirs of his very Godhead. Even Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost liveth ever one God, world without end. Amen. The first week we did this series, uh, there was some discussion afterwards, just briefly, of different cultures having different issues, different Christians in different cultures having different issues to deal with. Uh, and it occurred to me, it, I, I wanted to throw something out there at you uh, because that I use, and I like to call our unique issues, I mean, our American issues, I like to call this American Christianity. One of the issues that we have to deal with is Christianity or the misunderstanding of Christianity with an American flavor. Uh, and to that end, I want to read you just a couple of short lines from a, a wonderful book called The Snakebite Letters by a Roman Catholic theologian named Peter Kraft. Uh, now, I recommended this when I was at St. Constantine and Helen, and a guy in the parish promptly went out and bought a copy. And about three weeks later, he came to me, just said, I'm depressed. So, uh, you know, you might want to think this through before you go order. But anyway, if you've ever read the, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, Peter Kraft is a well-known Catholic lay theologian. Uh, and he has taken the idea of the Screwtape Letters and carried it a step further. He even admits that he's borrowed the concept or plagiarized the concept from C.S. Lewis. But I think this, in this book does not, you know, Lewis was a classic writer. So you get to enjoy the literary aspect of Lewis' work while you're reading about spiritual matters. This does not have that quality, but this deals with issues that we face much more profoundly. I think it's all in all a better book. Uh, in any case, uh, right near, the, and if you don't know the scenario in the screw tape letters and in the snake bite letters, there are a series of letters written by a senior demon to lesser demons, instructing them on how to make Christians fall away from the faith. Uh, and in this particular chapter, he says this, the senior demon says this, your patient is American, delightfully, typically American. What does that mean? A college a Catholic college professor recently polled his students and found that the vast majority of them, by their own reckoning, thought of themselves as Americans who happened to be Catholic rather than Catholics who happened to be Americans. This confusion about their true fatherland can be our wedge. So you just put the word orthodox there in place of Catholic. We are orthodox Christians who happen to be Americans rather than Americans who happen to be Orthodox Christians. If we think we're Americans who happen to be Orthodox Christians, we're, we need to be in this class, because that's the point. We're trying to learn the proper perspective. He goes on to say this, unbelievers who know they are unbelievers are in constant danger of questioning their own emptiness and considering the alternative in the clear light of day. But unbelievers who think they believe these are our securest prey. The goal is to make one an unbeliever who still assumes that he believes. That's a struggle for American Christianity. I remember years ago, back when, 
back when the Soviet Union was still in place, and this is really funny how time is passing me by, there are many people in, when I do presentations like this who don't know certain things like the Soviet Union. I remember teaching in high school history, I had to explain what Czechoslovakia was. They didn't have any clue, because uh, it was now the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Uh, so I had to do, do an explanation that I took for granted because I grew up with Czechoslovakia as being a part of the historical map. Uh, in any case, I was going somewhere with that, and I've had a senior moment, forgive me. I'll probably have a few of those before the day is out. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, Kreef, what Kreef, said, Kreef says is what I call American Christianity. So when you want to put ourselves into that box of what we need to change. We need to purge ourselves of this American era of Christianity. I think you're gonna get a feel for this uh, today. Now, in terms of what I'm doing and what Father Mark is doing, we are taking two different, two different perspectives and they're running parallel. So I'm gonna be talking about creation here. So you're gonna think, what does this got to do with what he's talking about? But I think what you're gonna find is we're gonna parallel each other for a while and eventually they're going to merge. And they're going to be one thing, uh, and, and that's where we want to take you with this. So in any case, and it begins, please understand that this begins with talking about a mindset which leads to altering activity or action. Uh, and it can be also action and mindset. We have to have the mindset of Christ in, in Christianity, but we also have to act on it. And the two go together. Uh, and, and it's called, in orthodoxy, this is a concept that, it's, that is laden, the faith is laden with this, and it's called antinomy. It comes from a, a, two Greek words, antinomos, which basically mean, basically, roughly, uh, conflicting laws. I like to say that an antinomy is two seeming opposites held in tension. Two seeming opposites held in tension. Like God is transcendent. God is imminent. God is, Christ is God. Christ is man. See, seeming opposites held in tension. Notice what happens when you have an antinomy. What happens when you drop one half of an antinomy? Hanging off the cross like that. So antinomy is a part of orthodoxy. Almost everything we believe is antinomic. And we can get caught up in things like this. For example, mindset activity. Mindset is, it's all philosophy. It's all what we think. You know, it's all, it's academic. Activity is it's what we do, like the law under the Jewish people, the law of Moses under the Jewish people, the misunderstanding that some of them have. It's what we do. Salvation by works, if you will. Uh, <clears throat> that's activity. But the antinomy is two. Both of those. Our minds must change. Our activities must change. The two biblical languages, two main biblical languages are Greek and Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word repentance, remember the first thing Jesus says in his ministry is repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, at hand. In his first words, repent in Hebrew is shuv, and it means to turn around. It's an active thing, to turn the body around. It implies that we're walking away from God 
And if we really want to repent, we need to turn around and face him. In Greek, it's metania. It means to have a change of mind. So you turn the thought process around. One is active, one is interior. But the two constitute what repentance really is. See, if we do repentance, my change of mind is I have to be able to look at myself and admit that I really messed up. A lot of times, all the time. Uh, it's just you know, the, the list keeps getting longer and longer and longer. And if we're married and living with this other person who's totally different than we are, uh, that is male versus female, and, and they know all too well uh, what our lists are. My, my wife once said to me, can you hear my confession? I said, no, I can't hear your confession. She said, why not? You know all my sins anyway. <laughs> this one's for her. She can listen to this. It's a, I can't believe you told that story. She's going to say, well, you ought to know better. You can't trust me at all. Uh, in any case, two seeming opposites held in tension. And heresy, you know, we like to, we hear the word heresy, and we think of heresy as being this evil thing. It's an image of a demon, and he's coming to get us, sort of like the snake bite letters. But actually, heresy means to emphasize one aspect of the truth at the expense of the other. Therein lies the danger, because it is true. But insofar as it presents itself as the whole truth, it is totally wrong. So we have to come to a thinking that can discern this and understand. Uh, and especially as we look at like next week, for example, uh, what, how God plays a part in this in terms of our understanding of God. What I'm going to do here is look at what I'm saying from the perspective of the creation stories. Uh, so you're going to say, what, how does this have anything to do with anything? You're going to see in a minute. Believe it or not, the creations are, there are two creation stories in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. But if you look at the last two chapters of Revelation, which are the last two chapters of the Bible, you have an account of the recreation of creation. So basically, recreation of creation is creation. So you have creation at the beginning and the end of the Bible. They bookend the Bible counts all the data in the scriptures, creation. And there's so much to learn about God, about us, about this order in which we live, about our work and ministry. Father Mark was alluding today to what was known as the priesthood of all. We're all priests because we represent all of creation before God. And he alluded to that in the sermon today. And we did that in the liturgy. We represented all of creation before God. Well, I want to tell two stories then in this regard to sort of highlight this creation, the beginning and the end. Years ago, I decided to do a study on atheism because it seemed, and I was still in active ministry, that there were a lot of people coming to the church who claimed that they were had been atheists or they were atheists. And I really can, couldn't fathom that. I mean, I've been indifferent to God, but I believe that a God existed. Uh, so I couldn't see how anyone could, could claim some belief in atheism. So I started researching this. And I found a number of books. And one of them was a book called The God Debates. And there's a series of debates between an atheist 
and a Christian theist. That is, a theist is anyone who believes in a deity or believes in God or the concept of God. And this particular person was a Christian. And they did it in the classic debate format. Each presented a paper, his position in a paper form. Then each refuted the other or addressed the other. And then finally, they opened the floor to questions and answers. It was very interesting because I thought overall the material was a draw. I thought the atheist did as well as the Christian and the Christian as poorly as the atheist. Uh, but what caught my attention as I mulled over it and mused over the, the, the data was that the Christian had totally omitted aspects of the experience of God that are pertinent to being Christian. So in essence, what he did was that if the atheist argued that God cannot exist because all reality is material, and material reality can be tested in a scientific laboratory. If it exists, it can be tested. And if it can't be tested and proven in a scientific laboratory, it cannot be said to exist. That was basically the argument of this atheist. The Christians said, true, but you can see an order in this, and therefore you can intuitively surmise that there is a first creator or a first movement uh, that exists, in other words, God. For there, in order for there to be order. You can't have the kind of order in creation that we have with, uh, and it be accidental. Well, yeah, but he didn't really prove anything. And he really didn't address what we talk about when we talk about God, what we assume. We assume a position and aspects about God. Uh, and he didn't, never addressed that. In, in my estimation, then, he basically argued the same argument that the atheist argued and he, that's why he didn't win that argument. But in fact, we can't argue with an atheist because we're talking about two different things. Reality, creation, which we'll find in Genesis 1, is twofold, antinomic. It is material and it is immaterial. There is that which is visible and that which is invisible. One God, creator of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. The Nicene Creed captures what Genesis 1, imp 1 implies. It's both of those. And we have to come to that realization because of the very beginning of it is in the beginning, God. And I don't want to get ahead of myself because this is for next week. But scientists looks at creation and says, in the beginning. Christian looks at it, in the beginning, God. You realize what a profound difference that is? The starting point is here or it's here. I told you some months ago when I preached that when we, we need to come into the church and stand at the back and look forward toward the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary in the Orthodox Church is the area inside the altar rail. Okay, so if you come out of a Protestant tradition, they're used to using the word sanctuary to talk about the whole church. I'm not talking about that. This is why we get confused when they say, when we say, or we confuse them when we, uh, <clears throat> or they confuse us when they say they're building a new sanctuary and we're going, wait, you, you're building a new area inside the altar rail? I don't get that. Uh, <clears throat> we use the language differently. But in any case, step in the back and look forward toward the sanctuary. Then walk in and get up to the altar rail and turn around and look back. The space looks different, even though you're looking at the same thing from two different dimensions. Uh, <clears throat> It's important to do that, to get a feel for that. 
and priests, wise priests also go into a space, you know, Father, come say mass for me, fine, walk in the back door, everyone looks, I got it. Uh-uh, you go up there and you walk through the space and you get a feel for it. It's entirely different than it looks. Uh, if you don't want to mess up badly, then you better go up there and have a look. So in any case, in the atheist debates, what I saw was that the Christian was arguing with the same perspective that the atheist was arguing. Now here's the second story. Right after I taught this at St. Constantine and Helen a few years back, uh, a friend of mine sent me a, 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 an email with some information from a magazine. It was a Christian magazine that she had found. Um, and it had a disclaimer in the front. And the disclaimer, the disclaimer was that this, this magazine was trying to keep non-Christians from submitting copy to the magazine. And the best way to do it was to state their positions on issues right up front so everybody would know exactly what they stood for. So in it, what they said was, we believe, it, I mean, this, is, this is what they put, part of what they put, we believe that Genesis 1 is a scientific document and that the six days are literal six days. Now, I don't want to get into all that because we're not even talking about that. It is not a scientific document. That's the point. It's not whether it's a battle of evolution versus uh, creation. It's whether we're talking about a theological document or a scientific document. Genesis is not a scientific document. Now, let's talk about the word theology for a minute. That group had turned the scriptures into a scientific document and presented the wrong position. Uh, they presented the same position as the world around us, that which we need to change and why we're doing this. Theology. If I say the word theology, we're going we're gonna to talk theology today. What happens? Don't you dig in like, uh, oh, academics, intellectualism, uh, classroom studies, how boring. Theology means what is said about God. And the only way one can speak about God is to encounter him, to experience him. In the church, we encounter God. We have seen the light. Uh, or the, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the, only, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We speak of what we have seen and heard. And that's theology. So it's talk about God. So Genesis 1, the creation accounts, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, are theology. They are theological books, not science books. If we try to make them science, we can't explain things or we reduce to materialism things which are far deeper than that. And we don't want to do that. So, and, and it's... You know, we lose the antinomic quality of things as well. Uh, <clears throat> so we have to approach all of this with theological eyes, if you will. Now, go back to the first sentence of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word heavens does not refer to the sky, the ozone layer, the cosmos. It refers to the immaterial realm in the presence of God. What does God, according to Judeo-Christian tradition, and it was sort of a given when the writer of Genesis put this down, when God created he, all, all of creation, he created 
the immaterial first, the angelic realm, by the very act of creating, God makes it possible for anything that's created to be in, in, in his presence, to, ex, to experience him. So he creates the angelic realm and it experiences him. That's a part of the immaterial realm. It's not material. It's not like this. We can't, we can't measure the angels. Sometimes they appear as humans, but we really can't measure them. It's an immaterial realm. Then he creates the heaven, the, the, the earth and the heavens, the firmament, as it says in, in the Hebrew text of Genesis. Uh, <clears throat> so he is experienced. And that's the starting point. The God who is experienced. Uh, notice the language we use in the church. Encounter, participation in the divine life. Illumination, notice being filled, deification, the divine life is filling us. We have to encounter that and experience that. And that transcends any scientific notion and it cannot be proven in a laboratory. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? We gotta answer that question. And it, it deals with what we're talking about in terms of creation. So God's revelation for us is the starting point. And reality is greater than the material. It's wonderful, the material, but reality is greater than that. And this world, think how wonderful this world would be if we could see it and experience it the way it was in the beginning when it was totally filled and permeated by the divine life. This is the opening of the Bible, the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is the beginning is where we start, not a scientific laboratory. All right, let's figure out now how the first molecules started and where they came from and all that. It's so off basis to miss the point. It's not a bad discipline in and of itself, it's good. It's been a boon for humanity, but it's not where we start. We start from God revealing himself and then ends with God revealing himself. Now, I'm going to do something else here. It seems in the side and it goes in this picture. In the Western Rite, when we do psalms and, 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 and psalms and canticles, we frequently have what are called antiphons, which go usually before and after uh, a psalm or a canticle. And the, the antiphons give the context to what's in the psalm or the canticle. Let's give you an example. In the daily office of Lauds, one of the psalms on feast days, on festal days, is Psalm 93. And the opening line is this, the Lord is king and hath put on glorious apparel. The Lord hath put on his apparel and girded himself with strength. Well, that's all clear, I guess. We can understand that, can we? If you put an antiphon about the nativity before this, then the glorious apparel that God puts on is the nativity. Do you get the picture? The incarnation, the birth, the, the, the birth, the manifestation of Christ in his birth uh, is the adornment of God. God who created the universe adorns himself by becoming human flesh and manifesting himself among his creation. If you take the Epiphany or Pascha and do this, it's the same thing. It, it affects the way we view the words of the text. 
If you take the lives of saints, like Saint Benedict, and Saint, the, the rule of the order of Saint Benedict in here has a number of great antiphons describing aspects of the life of Saint Benedict. That is, the saint's life becomes the apparel that God puts on. You and I become the apparel that God puts on, as we're going to see in another lesson. He adorns himself with his creation and manifests himself through his creation. The Lord is king and hath put on glorious apparel. Wow. That's awesome. And so we have, I like to think of creation then as the antiphons of all that we believe. The beginning and the end. Creation is the antiphon of reality. And what it tells us adorns and explains and exposes and makes known what is believed. What we're going to see in the future lessons, lessons coming up, are these things. As I've said, creation is both immaterial and material. It's a whole realm out there that most of us haven't explored, but that's what this Christian life is all about. But it's not on its own, it's with the material. We gotta maintain that antinomy. We'll learn that creation stories reveal God. This is the starting point. We're here to experience the God who makes himself known. That's what our work is. And all knowledge will, will stem from that experience, from that encounter. It will change everything. It will change the way we see everything. A third, paradise, Eden, is not some place in the Middle East. Some place. It's an experience. It's an encounter. God is paradise. When we experience him, we experience Eden. So we want to be as open to that as we can be, because that means that paradise can be manifest here on earth, now, in us, with us. And there are three aspects of that. The immediate experience of God and the experience of God on earth in particular places. Notice in the Old Testament, God appears in various places to the great saints and they build shrines there because those are holy places where the presence of God permeated that place. The temple was the place manifest in the Old Testament of God's presence. Christ's life is manifest of the presence until people go to the Holy Land because he walked that ground and that ground is somehow sanctified by that presence. And the church temple is that presence. That's not just some building there. It's not just brick and mortar. God has manifested himself here in this place and we can come here and experience it, but it's not all there is. And then there is the place of our hearts. What does St. Paul say? Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Our beings are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We are be, to be the places where God manifests himself in creation. Each and every one of us are to represent all of creation before God and God before all of creation. To be the place of his presence. Hence, deification. To be permeated by the divine. We're going to learn about that and see what paradise really is. Paradise is an experience. There are two creation stories which we will look at, sort of. Uh, I've had to adjust these classes to fit these circumstances, so I can't quite as long-winded as I normally am. Uh, the first creation story speaks of God as creator. God is the source of all things, the starting point. 
And the second creation story speaks of God creating and using humanity as an agent of his creative power and his creative manifestation. So in essence, you have God and us, we as his agents, we as his representatives, we as the vehicles through which he will manifest himself to all of creation. That's a part of second Genesis. So we're not just here for the ride. We have a work to do. We're being drawn into the divine life. Uh, and God wants us to be drawn in. He made us to be drawn in. He made us able to reflect his being. Notice how halos. Well, I don't think we have, well, I guess this these two will work. If you find some pictures from the Middle Ages, from the West, Western Europe in the Middle Ages, you'll often find that the halos are located above the head, but very often at an angle. So it looks like they're floating on top of the saint, almost as if it's a statement or an attachment or, you know, God gave him something. He made him a saint. But in orthodoxy, they're always rounded because the divine life, which is what that represents, comes flows out of us. It, it, we are, it permeates our beings and shines out. It's not an attachment. It's not a title. It is being. It is being what God wants us to be. We're going to learn about this. Humanity in the beginning was very, very different than what we experience now. And when we find out what that is, we'll know what our work is. And it's awesome. Covenant begins in paradise. The whole notion of covenant, God and man in a relationship that leads somewhere. Uh, and they're not, they're not many covenants, there's one. Did you know that, I was just reading the other day that in the first two centuries of the church, not a single father seems to have used the concept, the new covenant or the new Testament. Was just one. Writers in the New Testament, like Hebrews, uh, several of the writers in the New Testament, try to refute Judaism by pointing out that the whole notion of covenant transcends the story of Christ, even. For example, the writer to the Hebrews, when he talks about the priesthood of Christ, says that the whole concept of priesthood goes back beyond the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of Moses, to the covenant with Abraham. The writer of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, tries to show the genealogy of Christ dating back to Abraham. That precedes the Mosaic covenant. Luke tries to go back to Adam, to the beginning. And really covenant comes with Adam, with creation in the beginning. Covenant comes out of creation. We'll learn that, you're gonna like this one, obedience and fasting are fruits of the tree of life. Now, how many of us think when Lent starts that we're going to participate by fasting, we're participating in the fruit of the tree of life? I don't think so. Uh, but it is. God said, don't eat the fruit of that tree. That's fasting. He wasn't allowed to. So we need to look and change the way we look at these things, see them in a new light because they bring life. They're fr the fruit of the tree of life. To grasp this is to gain a foretaste of paradise, believe it or not. Lenten discipline is a foretaste of paradise. 
in pre-Lent, the first Sunday in pre-Lent in the daily offices, one of the lections for the day is one of the many creation stories in the Bible. And there, there are several others beside the Genesis text, and it uses one of those. In other words, when we get ready to start Lent and pre-Lent, we're preparing ourselves for Lent. We're preparing ourselves to enter into the process of returning to paradise. Wow. The fall affects both the material and the immaterial. So everything is distorted, and we have to admit this, because we view paradise from a distorted perspective, and we want to change that. Another thing we'll learn is that idolatry is always a danger. Now, you and I would not think of ourselves as idolaters, but whenever we try to create God in our image, the way we want him to be, expect him to be, we are committing the, the sin of idolatry. I mean, have you ever had an art or discussion with somebody and you say something about, about God and the person will respond by saying, well, my God is not like that. There's the red flag, idolatry. But we usually respond with some notion that we've made up, but it's just as bad. God will reveal himself to us. You know, it's like somebody to say, well, how can you say salvation only in Christ? Because he said it and he is God incarnate. It's that simple. We don't have to worry about who God is going to save or what anything else. We have to believe what he says and take it at face value. So we, we can't water it down. Otherwise, well, he didn't mean it that way. Well, prove it. Yeah, he did. You know, it's interesting. What's unique, Christ is often spoken by people as being a great teacher. But what I find is in looking at the gospel accounts, most of what he said can be found in Judaism in different forms and shapes, but basically the same idea there and even in other religions. What's really unique about Christ is who he said he was. That's really unique. So we're going to call ourselves Christians. We have to deal with what he said about himself. I think that's why he said, who do you say that I am? We got to deal with that issue. And when we deal with it rightly, it opens the door to eternity to us, which is what paradise is. It opens everything up. And if we close it, if we say, no, I want it my way, then we shut those doors and we cut ourselves off from the divine life and we fail to be what we, we were meant to be and we find ourselves unhappy and finding life meaningless and like we're going nowhere. Idolatry is what it is. In the incarnation, God reunites himself with humanity. The essence of orthodoxy in the incarnation story is that God reunites himself. He unites himself with us in ways that we can see and experience once again what it means to be truly human in the created order. He does that. This is not the time to go into the details of it. All of this comprehension is entailed in the word creation, which begins and ends the biblical text. In other words, it is they are the antiphons of creation. Keep it in this context. Keep this perspective. Don't lose this perspective. And all of this is reiterated in the church's architecture. And that's another lesson. In the church's liturgies, in the church's lectionaries. It's just, they've been telling us this for centuries, and most of us have managed not to hear it, or not to see it, or not to grasp it. And we want to, because this is what we were put here to do. 
So in the next lesson, I'm going to talk about, in the beginning, God, and what we've learned in the church about that word uh, as a starting point. Because I want you to hear the first line of Genesis and think of all of that. Sort of like it opens a door and go, oh, wow. You know, it's more than, it's like going to the church and it's more than seeing the icons and the imagery. It's like Christ is there. He's manifesting himself. He's making himself seen and known and encountered by me. Anyway, in the beginning, God, I would tell you then to, as an assignment, if you want to, but I encourage it, read Genesis. You can do this. Read Genesis 1-1. 1-1, one, one, that is first verse of Genesis. If you want to read the rest of it, go ahead, but read 1-1. One, one. And then go to Revelation 21 and read the first five verses. So verse six verses. Yeah, you, you can do it. And contemplate it. Yeah, one a day, that's right. You can, you can do it. Contemplate it. And think of it in terms of what we're talking about, the antiphons of creation. And let it begin to germinate. I'm telling you, it's going to explode. It may take a while, but it's going to explode. That's all I have to say. <clears throat> Should we open the floor to questions, or are you all ready to go? <laughs> a little bit of both. I saw you first, yes. Can you kind of expand on the firmament, what that is, and the Well, the, in the, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Hebrew, the heavens, refers to the immaterial realm. The firmament refers to what we would think when we hear the word heavens, the sky, the ozone layer, the atmosphere, the cosmos. I mean, all of you know, when you realize we talk about scientific documents and we're sending these orbitals out into space and they're taking pictures millions of miles away and sending them back to Earth. And we tend to go, wow, that's out there. But that's still the material realm. God is beyond that. And the immaterial realm is beyond that. Whoa, we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> you, uh, yes. Um, are you recording this so we can listen to it? Well, yeah. Kind of kind of Actually, it's. Oh, okay. Okay. It's very dense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I realize that. And let me, let me just tell you. This is the way the faith really is. It is so profound because it is God making himself known to us. We're always going to feel that way. And most people quit because they feel overwhelmed. That's normal. The great saints were overwhelmed. I don't want to quit. I just want to listen to like one sentence at a time. Well, I know, I know. But I know, but there's a sense. I, I always want to go, this is too much for me. You know, this, no. I don't want it. I want it myself to be able to take in what you're saying, but there's so much new thinking with what you're saying of like broadening of things I thought I'd always known. That I just like literally am like, okay, if I had like one of those, you know, eight track things or not eight track, you remember the cassette tapes and you'd be like, pause it, like, you know, rewind, pause it, rewind. You're reminding me of a model I like to use. We think of the Christian faith as being linear. Uh, but it is eternal and linear. Uh, and I have said many times to people, everybody needs to go back through catechism once every three or four years. People always say, oh, I've already done that. I don't need that anymore. Because we're thinking linear. 
But actually the truth I find for me and in my own spiritual life has been, it's like this. You move it along, but you keep circling back to the stuff you learned at the beginning, at a deep, but you're learning at a deeper level. So there's, there's, there's always more. So I'm just saying, uh, I understand what you're saying, but yeah, there's, yeah, there's much to contemplate, but just when you think you've got a handle on it, God will bring you back to it at a deeper level and you go, oh, gee, I didn't even get it before. So that's what's so joyous, at least to me anyway. Some people find it just frightening, but I, but I, I think it's wonderful. I prefer it that way. Well, in the past, I always had outlines I gave people so that they could keep up with me. But this is not my parish, and I don't have access to the office like that. So, yeah, it is apparently on YouTube, but it's probably horrible that way. There'll be some some mess up. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right, the next time, in the beginning, God. Thank you.